Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to Scary Oh, sorry, Polly's in the other room. Yeah, we don't want to disturb her work. Oh, hello and welcome to the podcast. And today, it's another in the series of the uh, South Knots Hussars post-war. And this one's called Carry On Observing. And we needed one quickly. And this is one, as you've put it, you just knocked off. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, we, we, you've got to, uh, some of you who've been with us, uh, will remember that we're talking about 307 Battery, which are the, uh, the descendants of, uh, of, of, uh, 107 Regiment, the South Knots Hussars. Uh, we've gone through their career, how they, 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 they existed. They, they've been, had three batteries and then, then they've been smashed up by various cuts. And then we went through, uh, uh, Alan Beckson's period in command or as major officer OC. And then we did Tony Haynes, I think. And uh, there may have been another one, but we're a bit chuckle-headed this morning, aren't we, Gary? Yeah, was it Guy? I, I, I think it's the heat. The very posh man. Mm. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes, this is going out in June, isn't it, when it's, like, nice and sunny. And, uh, What's he like today, Gary? Yeah, it's snowing. snowing. <laughs> How'd you get here? Did you walk? Uh, plow. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, we've got a new person taking over command of the South Nuts Hussars, 307 battery, uh, OP battery, OP battery. Op. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, this is uh, Major oh, Mike Parker, isn't it? Who was, I remember him being uh, a bit tardy in his timekeeping, a bit disorganised, but once he got out into the field, a really good observation. He was, and he takes over in July 1979. What do you think his priority is? They, they, they all like to have a priority. There's a touch of new colonel, colonel about them sometimes, even though they're not colonels. Well, the predecessor had been forced by circumstances they found to concentrate at least in part on the social and political side of the battery they commanded. But he was determined to bring the military side right bang into focus at the centre of everything they did. Yep, that's right. He was absolutely convinced that... uh the opera, they had a real operational role that it was important and it was all part of the NATO, uh, British, uh, response to the looming threat 
from the Soviet Union. Now, this is the time that I enlisted. I, I joined in September 1978. So, I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic, as it were, to his concerns because it was all about the Soviet Union. It was, yeah. So this is what Major Mike Parker said. Just over the hill is the Soviet Third Shock Army. They didn't give a toss about our social life. They don't give a toss about us either. And these are the boys we're going to fight. Martin Farndale said to me once that this was very much the Third World War. It was the war in which a shot wasn't fired, but it was the Third World War. That was his view when he was Corps Commander. The war was on. The fact that we existed as a credible fighting unit was something that the Russians would take notice of. So every bit that we did was important. Someone would count the vehicles going out of Bullwell Gate on a weekend exercise. It would be in a diplomatic bag and would go back so that a picture of our training state would go back to the opposition. Parades are a good thing. Parties are a good thing. But there is only so much time available. The mustard is cut in Germany. That's where you learn. That's where our operational task was. Yeah. Now, I think he's overstating that a little bit. You know, I don't think the Russians had spies outside Bullwell. You know, those are just local tramps and things. Sorry, Nottingham people. Uh, but uh, um, I, I absolutely appreciate what he's on about because we've gone through, we've mentioned it before, both of us, and you yourself experienced it. There was a Cold War on. Well, there was a concern, though, Pete. When I was in Germany, uh, you, you went through... Uh, both normal vetting and then because I worked with the intelligence corps you had uh, personal vetting and they were concerned about elements of your personal life that would leave you open to bribery and corruption because you know they they were uh, they were fully of the opinion that there were Russian operatives in the area you must have been a real source of interest to them <laughs> your personal life was a living nightmare anyway to move on all right, all right, all right. So uh, what's he doing? He, well, uh, what he wants to bring a real workmanlike approach uh, uh, to, to the, and, and, and make sure that their capacity and capabilities for soldiering uh, 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 in the field are such that when them, if, if, or rather in his view, when the men went to war, they wouldn't be caught out by what they experienced there. And almost everything he did was fo focused on that. The ability for them to carry out their OP role in Germany. Now, Mike Parker had one endearing quirk to go with his professional competence. That's the one you mentioned, isn't it? It was his engaging spirit of free-spirited randomness in all his personal arrangements. He, th he was therefore undoubtedly fortunate to have at his side the slightly portly form... <gasps> of his battery captain, Tim Richmond. Although they were very different characters, they formed an effective team in which both knew exactly what they were meant to be doing. And this is battery captain Tim Richmond of headquarters. More than anything, the battery commander wanted the battery captain to be out and about pick, picking up and looking underneath the covers to see what, what was going on, to make sure that things were operating effectively in an operational way, leaving him, i.e. Mike Parker, much freer to be doing doing the leadership thing with the soldiers. He really was dedicated to making the training more interesting and more relevant. And he did actually have a radical new vision for a more challenging annual camp. And this is uh, Major Mike Parker. What I wanted to do is to get the battery out for the whole fortnight. 
I wanted to move it as tactically as I possibly could with as much operational realism as I could. I wanted to cover as far as I could as many training areas, not just go to one training area and sit on it. I wanted to move to here, to there, to there, to there, to back home. How do you, uh, how do you think uh, his long suffering? Because he, he, given his uh, lack of, uh, lack of personal ability with time, how do you think his uh, long suffering subordinates found these, uh, these rapid moves and things and, and his, idea of time a doddle that's not the right answer <laughs> wrong naught out of ten Must no do. because underneath all this pragmatism he was the same <laughs> old Mike Parker and he was capable of causing chaos amongst his long suffering subordinates so not a doddle now, in these circumstances, the, the, the creation of a new post of an administrative officer was really welcome. Uh, it frees up both Mike Parker and Tim Richmond, the battery captain. They can concentrate on their military role. And, and, uh, and, and also, they needed to negotiate a reasonably friendly and practical relationship with the training officers. Now, who are these training officers? Well, they're normally assigned to the 307 battery from the first uh, RHA. Regulars, then? Oh, they are regulars, or yeah. Ex or ex oh, current, yeah. Now, the first occupant of the post was an unusual character. Roy Myford was a former inspector of gunnery from the School of Artillery at Lark Hill, and he was known and respected throughout the Royal Artillery. And he was blessed with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Although, <laughs> yeah, technically, when acting in his new post, he'd be known as uh, Captain. And what was he known as, really? Ethel. Colonel. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't called Ethel by any but very, very close friends. Now, Colonel Roy Myford soon made his value felt. A report from an annual camp suggested that the three-gun format of the gun troop left the forward observation officer lacking in uh, uh, any of the high-level training above the battery level. So they need to be used to guiding more guns. Yes. yes. And this is what Sergeant John Jackson, who was the 425, that's the gun troop, said. Well, we were only a training aid and we only had three 25-pounder guns. Roy Myford said, well, now we've got some expertise. Why don't we try and get six guns? We turned up one Sunday and there were three more guns. Nobody knew where they'd come from. Nobody had to sign for them. They'd got all the full kit that you needed for them. Brand new barrels. Never been fired. They'd been made for service in the war. That's the Second World War. Roy had found them somewhere <laughs> from one of his many contacts around the army. So we were then established back to being a proper gun battery. The powers that be didn't know until we turned up at practice camp with six guns and the men to man them. And this is this is part of the why I like the South Dutchers are. They just do these things sort of illicitly. Now soon Jackson was promoted to Troop Sergeant Major. He, all these... I want to make one other small point. These, We're now in the period of your career, and they're all getting promoted. They are. Why didn't you get promoted? I did. Uh, now, he was Troop and Sergeant... Then what demoted. Now, he was Troop Sergeant Major and was acting in the dual cap, uh, capacities of Command Post Officer and Gun Position Officer under the, uh, under the overall control of Captain Gil Aldridge, who'd been the previous battery... Company Sergeant Major, I seem to recall. Yeah, he was a good lad, uh, Captain Gilgar Aldrich. Very sad to know he recently died. Uh, now, uh, Roy Myford followed up that coup uh, with something else. What else did he do? Because you, you've got the guns. What else do guns need, Gary? 
Well, exactly. He also located an accessible source of ammunition. Uh, the augmented gun troop was soon in action as a result uh, and as uh, a far more useful training tool. Yeah, and uh, a troop sergeant major, John Jackson, 425 Battery Still, says uh, he explains, we could now do multi-battery targets because we had six guns. This is why we needed the regimental survey aspect again. If you're going to fire multi-batteries on the same target, they had to be on the same grid. They might not be at the same location, they could be two or three miles away, but they both had to hit one target. So we had two troops of three guns and a command post representing two batteries. We'd do leapfrogging so the OP officers could practice taking turns in controlling more than one battery, having one battery on the ground firing while they were moving another battery around. And that's the whole point of it. Because the OP, remember, Gary, I'm sure you have, because you bear these things at the forefront of your mind, it's the OP officers that matter. It's the OP teams that are their function. The, the guns are still a training aid, but now there are more efficient and training aid, aren't they? Now, the 25-pounder guns may have been old-fashioned and thoroughly obsolescent, but the gun troop was slowly changing into something that resembled a miniature gun battery. Yeah, and I want you to remember this, Gary, for a couple of episodes ahead when something happens that's magical and wondrous. Okay. <laughs> now, meanwhile, Mike Parker's changes in the overall training methods were beginning to have an effect. Yeah. He, he himself had always been a good forward observation officer and he did everything to encourage those of his officers who expressed keenness to get on with mastering that trade. And this is uh, one of them, and you're going to tell us what Captain Chris Houghton of 426 Troop, that's one of the OP troops, said. The firing weekends always had an exercise theme to make you get your Germany hat on. Every weekend involved an assault course. Each member of the OP crew was tested and their skills demonstrated. It was a change of emphasis. Times were changing and the TA had to become more professional because that was what was requested from us by the regular army. So this all makes sense to me. Uh, did you have a Germany hat when you were in Germany? I had a hat, yes. What sort of hat? Well, it was a Germany hat because I was in Germany. Oh, not now, a pickle hat. Interestingly, we did actually get the TA come out regularly for uh, trips up to Berlin on the uh, on the military train with the intelligence corps. And uh, you could see actually over time they did get more professional in appearance, more professional in approach. It, it, I can sympathise with some of this. I can emphasise and I can um, prioritise. <laughs> Ran out of words, did I you did. <laughs> Now, uh, in one uh, respect, he did, however, waver in his grim determination. Um, that uh, perhaps just shows that every man has his own weakness. And this is Second Lieutenant Ian Cunningham, uh, 426 Battery, who uh, had uh, many weaknesses, as I remember. Good chap he was. And he has to say, I have to say that we very quickly went back into the normal Sunday lunch routine because Mike Parker was much more of a gourmand than he likes to admit. Also, he did realise that there were some aspects to the lunch that did work to the battery's advantage. What do you think he means by that? Drink. Social, just socialising, getting to know each other, drink, bonding together, drink, um, friend. Oh, I've run out of words. Drink, 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 drink. Now, overall, the Mike Parker years were successful in concentrating the battery once more on its commitments in Germany. Hmm, something I can think of that's looming up though that might have uh, interested him. What was that? Well, at the end of his period in command in nineteen eighty-two. Yeah. 
he saw the Falklands as a real chance to deploy on active service. So this is what Bombardier Ian Aldershaw, 426 Troop, says. The Falklands affected everybody because we were able to see vividly on television the British Army at war. The things that affected people most were the losses rather than the victory. We all expected victory. I don't think anyone knew the risks that were involved. It just brought it home when we were about. Mike Parker was absolutely convinced that the South Knots was ours would go to war, and I think it was what he hoped for. He'd raised the level of training at that time. His act said that his webbing was packed and all ready to go in his office. That's his assistant, you know, his guy's going to say. Uh, uh, it, it's nice to think. He was so, you know, you, you can't imagine being left out of it. If, if, I mean, and I understand that, you know, people say, why do people want to go to war? But if you've trained for it all that time, you can, can you not see that, Gary? Yeah, because otherwise, what's the purpose? Yeah. Now, uh, who succeeded him? And this is one of the real... Again, there's many of these officers of post-war heroes and personal friends, in my view of mine. Uh, who, who takes over from uh, Mike Parker? Well, his successor was Major Tim Richmond, uh, and he took over in August 1982. So just after the Falklands, as I remember. Was that May or June? Somewhere around there. Uh, June. Yeah. Uh, now, Richmond was at heart a businessman. And in many ways, his regime had a great deal in common with his predecessor, Colonel James Gunn. That now was we, the one we were trying we, to think we of. remember him. Uh, he was a splendid old boy as well. Um, uh, so, so did you think Richmond was the sort of man to just wait to be put in command and then and then start making uh, plans, or, or do you think he had a different approach? Well, I think you're referring to the fact that he started thinking about his future priorities well before even his term had started. Now, this is what Major Tim Richmond says. When Mike and I, while, while he often got the first word of any sentence, I remember that was a peculiarity of Mike Richmond's, while Mike and I were entirely different, I very much supported the objectives that he had, which was to make the training very much more relative and hard-hitting, whilst at the same time... Excuse me, it wasn't it, only the first word. Oh, much more relevant. <laughs> what did I say? Relative. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> so not just the first word. No, t- poor old Tim. He's got uh, that thing where words are wrong. Would you like to start again? No. <laughs> Whilst at the same time being very much the South Nuts as are. Mike was not a great organiser or administrator, but he was a good leader. I think I was more organised. <laughs> This is not me, really, is it? The emphasis I was looking for would have been better planning of the training in terms of its execution, making more use of the management structure with much more clarity as to the jobs of the training captain, administrative officer, the battery captain and the troop commanders. A proper management structure with regular management conferences and O groups, and the orders groups. Uh, and and he is... Um, <laughs> A well-organised chap. Uh, if you want something doing in the back, even today in the South Nutsazars, the greater South Nutsazars circle, you go to Tim Richmond. Now, one of his priorities was to improve still further the readiness of the unit for their duties on attachment in Germany. But also, as an accomplished politician, he realised the importance of significantly raising the performances of the unit unit in OP competitions held in the UK. And he goes on to say this. I had concerns that the quality and type of training we were giving were still not sufficiently equipping people to go to Germany. 
those people that were going very regularly were getting very good at it, but bringing other people along was quite difficult. We were starting to run into a bit of trouble with our performance in the various competitions that we were part of. There was the King George VI Cup, which had been brought in for the OP parties to compete for. Now, over a period of time, a fairly cavalier view had been taken of these competitions, that they were irrelevant from a training point of view. But the problem was that because we were not doing well in them, we were starting to look as though we were third class. So in other words, there may have been a stupid competition to you, but if you do badly in them, that's all that the powers that be. Yeah, it's about perception, isn't it? Yeah. Now, he was utterly determined to win the King George the Sixth Cup, and he knew that he could not achieve this with his current hand. Now, in particular, he'd identified that some of his officers totally lacked a proper focus as to why their country paid them as officers. They had developed a facade that allowed them to evade their responsibilities behind a veneer of cod sophistication and a loose world weariness. Uh, There's uh, about eight words in there you were hoping I'd trip up over, wasn't there? I have to say that loose is one of my favourite words. What we're t- we talking about, let, let, I think he explains it perfectly. Tim says this. Tim, my personal friend. Major Tim Richmond. Major Tim Richmond. The first thing was to get the motivation right. I had to make it pretty clear that it was something we ha- that we had to take seriously. That that was not straightforward with all the officers. Some of them felt it was a bit naff. This is the King George VI Cup. And so it was a matter of a combination of an iron fist in a velvet glove. I used to get very angry. We used to have a number of officers who would overplay this South Knots yo- Hazar yeomanry bit. Two or three of them went off to a brigade tute. Tax- uh, what's that, Gary? That's a tactical exercise without troops. And it was reported back to me that one of them had put on a polka dot cravat and that they had made complete buffoons of themselves. They were trying to be something they weren't. They were trying to mimic their view of what an absolutely top-notch cavalry relaxed approach to life would be. I got the officers together and said, As and when this battery is that good that we are winning all competitions, then we'll start wearing polka dot cravats. But until we're that good, we're not going to go out there making fools of ourselves. And I absolutely understand what he's saying. And this, for me, is why these podcasts are interesting. This is different characters trying to get their vision across. And it's quite interesting the different ways they do it and and different priorities. Now, he also decided that they could not improve the standard of their operational use of the 432 APCs and ferrets with the training situation as it then existed with no access in the UK to either of those vehicles. So, well, how can you train in the UK if you haven't got any? So this is what Tim Richmond says here, Major Tim Richmond. I really must be more formal. The driver training and maintenance of the 432 APC and the ferrets and the very business of actually operating in and acclimatising oneself into that type of environment was something we just simply did not have in the UK at all. For our training purposes at this stage, we would have long wheelbase Land Rovers fitted for radio, and that was it. With my OP team, when we got to Germany, it would be three or four days into three or four days into a Germany exercise before we were operating effectively. 
That really threw you. And it threw the regular people who were maybe expecting better of you. The battery was visited by the Inspector General Territorial Army, Lieutenant General Sir Edward Burgess, who was a gunner by background. He said, <laughs> I just want you to tell me one thing that you would like me to do for you that would improve the lot of the battery. So I explained about the 432 APC and said, either if we could have one 432 APC, a ferret fully equipped with signals, harness, etc., or at Bullwell or Chilwell, Chilwell, that's Chilwell, that's nearby, it's a mobilisation station for the TA later on, then I would be better able to train my OP parties ready for Germany. He said, <laughs> thank you, I've got the point. Within the next three months, four A32 armoured personnel carriers and four ferrets, all fully equipped, arrived at Bullwell as part of our establishment. And it made a hell of a difference to our training. And that's Richmond's skills as a politician, which I think it would be fair to say Parker didn't have. Different skill sets. They, Parker was an amazing OP officer. Um, well, now, now, Major Richmond also had strong views as to the value and methods of recruitment. And it, that's not the first uh, commanding officer that's had those views. And this is what he said. One thing I very strongly believed as battery commander <clears throat> was that you never, ever stopped recruiting. We would always have the regulars wanted to tell us how to recruit. They would set up procedures, which were more about having recruiting campaigns followed by recruiting courses. To my mind, if somebody wants to join the Territorial Army, you have to catch them on the day they want to join. You've got to get them in and you've got to amuse them and keep them moving forward. If someone comes along in April and you say, well, come back in September when we're recruiting again, then they're sure as hell not going to come back. They'll have either gone somewhere else, decided to play hockey or found a new girlfriend. So you have to keep at it all the time and you have to have a recruit's wing ready to accommodate them and to interface in with the training systems. And we'll just now take a very short break. 
Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now slowly, his business-like style began to pay real dividends. That's Major Tim Richmond's style. Armed with clear objectives, he instituted regular meetings with his management team to discuss objectives and progress in achieving them. I think that's interesting because one thing that would come to your mind is that how the bloody hell did they manage without regular management meetings, if you see what I mean? Yeah, but also measuring, you know, actually measuring what you're doing. and Progress. And progress against it, yeah. yeah. We've said this before about one of the earlier commanding officers used um, uh, pr- um, planning aids to do so. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, a gun, I think. Programs. Yeah. Mm. Uh, he monitored weekly attendance figures. And that's just cr- that's your bed and that's your bed and breakfast, eh? That's your bread and butter, isn't it? Uh, what was? Why would he monitor attendance figures? Well, you got you got to understand your battery strength. I mean, how do you know otherwise? Not approximately, but exactly. Now he also appointed Gil Aldridge as his battery captain, and uh, it was with an almost audible sigh of relief <laughs> that the old campaigner finally accepted an administrative role away from the rough and tumble of the field. And this is uh, former Sergeant Major and now Captain Gil Aldridge of 425 Troop. I was in the middle of a piece of land marking out a new gun position. I'd got all my webbing equipment on. I'd got my small arms with me. I thought, what the hell am I doing here at my age running around this bloody gun position? That's when I thought... Oh, no, I've had enough of this. Sleeping rough and that. I've done enough. Now, uh, so that's one. So he's come into the management team. Better. And then in August 1983, uh, Tim Richmond gets a very valuable addition to his team. Uh, and this is the arrival of uh, Captain Robert Watson, who's going to be his training officer. And what the... Uh, oh, sorry, he's part of the headquarters team. He's part of the central team. And what does Captain Robert Watson say, Gary? Well, strangely, he said what you just said. He says... I was posted as a training officer to the South North Suzars as a training officer. I think there may have been a mistake there. <laughs> there was some doubt as to this for two reasons. The training officer of the South North Suzars had always come from the first RHA. He wasn't. He wasn't, yeah. And the second was around my lack of skills in gunnery. My practical experience of gunnery wasn't that great, having been in a missile regiment in my formative years. Now, I remember interviewing him, and yeah, he was on, I think he was even on the nuclear ones and that sort of thing. He was on all sorts of things, yeah. He goes on. But because I had done an OPs course and the output of the uh, South Notsuzars was OPs, I think I scraped through on that. It had crossed my mind that I ought to be thinking about leaving the army. And if you're going to leave the army, it's darn difficult to do it, having spent seven or so years in Germany. Not so easy to try and find a job from that position. So the opportunity to come back to England was something I wanted to do. Now, what what on earth could a training officer be responsible for, Gary? 
Uh, well, he's got to meet the uh, the wishes of his battery commander. Uh, but the camps and the training grounds as required. Prepare uh, sorry, the, book the camps and the training prepare grounds. Prepare the training programme all over, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And he's got to liaise on a day-to-day basis with the 49th Brigade Headquarters. That's the overall sort of artillery. Brigade Headquarters. Yeah. Brigade yeah. Artillery Brigade, they're not infantry. Now, Watson brought a recent familiarity with the basics of soldiering from his very recent experience, including the vital ability to drive Land Rovers safely down dodgy tracks across Salisbury Plain at night. A vital skill, Gary, I'm sure you'd agree. Yeah, and although a regular soldier, he was still reasonably impressed with what he found at Ballwell. And this is Captain Robert Watson. Given some work-up training, the basic skills were certainly there. Some OP parties were extremely competent, veterans of going to Germany. They knew their way around better than many of the regulars did, quite frankly. There was a sort of confidence that came from them, a pride in being territorial that would have carried them through things, not in confrontation with the regular army, but an element of brass neck which would carry them through. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, as training officer, he also had to check that everyone had the proper qualifications to to get their annual bounty. In other words, that they'd done... The, the right number of training sessions and, and uh, camps. Well, was he uh, the training officer then? What? Was he the training officer? He then? was. We ought to emphasise at this point that uh, Captain Robert Watson was the training officer. Now, the money may not have been entirely why individuals joined the TA, but whatever their personal motivation, it's certainly important to most of them. Yeah. And this is what Captain Robert Watson goes on to say. To qualify for bounty... An individual had to do 27 days, 15 days of which was a camp. Then there were certain tests, a skill at arms test, a physical test, a three-mile run, first aid test, NBC, that's nuclear, biological, chemical test. And as a special to arms, one we used to have an armoured fighting vehicle recognition test. Uh, As an OP party, you need to know what's coming. (laughs) The easiest way of doing this was to get everyone together at one fell swoop to try and get them through it. So he's talking about recognising the vehicles at a distance. Well, you don't want to shoot at uh, uh, the four three. Two, uh, well, you in- might do. Instead of a, you might do, instead of a T-30 sausage. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I think overall, the impression from the interview I did was that Watson was impressed, and I should think so too, actually, with what Tim Richmond was trying to achieve. And, and he fitted really easily into Richmond's management team. Um, now, shortly after Watson arrived, something important is going to happen. And this is the annual com- uh, competition for the King George the Fifth or Sixth. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed the notes seem to go between Fifth and Sixth. <laughs> <laughs> Cup, uh, which was held at Bulford Camp. Uh, we, we That's where uh, Chris Carling, Major Chris Carling, uh, was under his part of his responsibilities in September 1983. Um, now, what it, we, we've mentioned this competition before under several names, as we've just mentioned. Well, but, we've said that uh, Major Tim Richmond likes to measure things, doesn't he? He does. So this was his opportunity to test their progress in direct competition with the other specialist TAOP batteries in all aspects of their artillery role. He says this. Part of the competition was to test the gun troop, bearing in mind that, that the view that this was a, a training aid and was therefore being tested in a non-tactical environment. A relatively small proportion of the marks would come from the performance of the gun troop, but it would include occupation of the gun position and the technical processes at the gun end. 
At the OP end, it would be a combination of testing the OPs for their normal technical shooting skills, different shoots, smoke, HE, that's high explosive, air burst, and so on. The forward observations fire plan, for observation officers fire plan, uh, sorry, uh, the armoured fighting vehicle recognition, first aid, some tactical questions. Usually a night march leading to the occupation of an OP. Sometimes the battery commander was tested with a fire plan. So uh, th th there's a lot. It, there's a lot to be tested at the, at the for the King George the What's It competition. Now, as the new training officer, because he was the training officer, uh, Bob Watson, so that's Captain Robert Watson, was keen to make his mark, and he threw himself into the preparatory training over the last few weeks and at the annual camp. And this is what Captain Robert Watson of headquarters says: He's a training officer. Just He's the training it. officer. Yeah. A two-week camp is the best chance you've got to really start to train people and work them up to that crescendo. We were able to do quite a good job of that. I spent a large amount of time with OPs on concealment and that sort of thing, so that as an inspecting officer comes over a hill to examine an OP party, it's really rather nice if he can't find the party in the first place because they're so well camouflaged. It was things like that we tried to do. Some of that final window dressing, just setting the scene and making sure that people look the part so that they came across as being the part. A lot of it is confidence and bringing out basic skills that people have already got, but presenting it in the right way. Now, part of this, just to give you, we've just heard what the rules of the competition were. They didn't have to camouflage the gun positions because the guns are a training aid. They're not tactical. What did the South Not Tazars do, Gary? Well, they would camouflage them. They insisted on it. Yeah, and uh, it was to show their grasp of the tactical aspects of gunnery in the field. As the contest began, everyone was on their metal and nothing, nothing was left to chance. And this is what Troop Sergeant Major John Jackson says, 425 Troop. We did things a bit slower than we would normally do just to get it right. We were, oh, his, his accent's changed. changed. As he got, he, he was a generic you, northern, I yeah. think. Right, we would make sure that we'd got everything re ready before we call the guns forward. The guns would be in a hide and we'd go out and recce the position and work out where the gun platforms were going to be. Then we'd call the guns forward. We got to the stage where we'd take forward one man from each gun so that they had got a good idea of where the gun platform every other gun and the command post was you normally only did that for a night exercise but we thought it would help us we said they were the protection party for the recce party slightly bending the rules a bit nothing like the army for slightly bending the rules a bit oh rules are meant to be slightly bent right? Now the end result. I've always considered you as slightly bent. <laughs> now the end result was a triumph for Richmond. Yeah, his team and three hundred seven battery, but it also reflected the overall change of emphasis that had begun under his predecessor, Mike Parker. And that I think we want to emphasise, and I know I did when I wrote about this this unit in a, in a book for them, that. This is, it's not one man, one, this is a continuation that, I mean, Mark Parthor deserves a lot of credit for what happens here as well as Richmond and the others. Um, were fabulous. Now, buoyed up by this success, they would win the King George V or Sixth Cup again in 2005. And as a result, graced the cover of the uh, Gunner magazine, the South Knots Hussars were back. Oh, God, why haven't we finished there? 
That would have been a great finishing point. <laughs> now, amongst Richmond's officers, there was one who could not be faulted as a uh, forward observation officer, but he nevertheless caused Tim Richard, uh, Tim Richmond, considerable problems. Who was that? Yeah, I think you alluded to it earlier. Lieutenant Ian Cunningham had his own set of priorities, and although he excelled in role and heartedly disdained the cravat element of officers, he could be awkward to handle once he'd set on a course of action. He certainly bloody could. He says this, I spent most of the 1980s making sure I never went on a UK camp. What I wanted to do was maximise my time in role, and as far as I was concerned, being in role meant being with my associated regiment in Germany. I don't think that anything was achieved by UK camps. The only person that forced me onto a UK camp was Tim Richmond. I remember him asking me at the end of the camp if I thought it had been any good. There were some aspects that I'd enjoyed, but I said... No, as far as I was concerned, it was a waste of valuable training time. A wonderfully arrogant remark, which pissed him off no end. And I, I, I mean, they're good friends now. And but, but the point is, different people, different priorities. And th- this silly young lieutenant, who, by the way, is utterly committed OP officer, does have a future in the unit, which is, you know, the, these people... Progress. In September 1984, the British Army commenced Exercise Lionheart, the largest peacetime exercise since World War II, and encapsulating a full mobilisation exercise of the entire TA. Now, you, you were in this, weren't you? I was in Crusader. Oh, yeah, I was right. in Germany I mis- during Crusader, I which I thought was the biggest since the Second World War. It probably was, until this one. Mm. Um, now, so what, what does 307 battery have to do in, in uh, uh, Lionheart? Well, they're expected to contribute all 12 OP parties for attachment to the regular units serving in Germany. Now, Tim Richmond, he was determined not to foul, and by dint of organisation, tactful persuasion, bullying, <laughs> and sleight of hand, juggling of his uh, PSI staff... Permanent staff instructor. ..he uh, managed to achieve his objective... Uh, well, what what he means, what I, that what that means is, you're not really supposed to use some of your PSI staff to fill in roles, but he would he persuaded some of them to fill in. Who was one of them? He got to fill in. Was it the training officer? Well, in fact, that was one he could not persuade. Oh, because Captain Bob Watson was his training officer, and it was uh, by then <laughs> only a few days before he formally left the army, and he'd not yet sorted out what he would be doing in civilian life. Oh, he did, however, have an important role in the preparations in his capacity as training officer. And this is what Captain Robert Watson of headquarters says. We were going to get and send 12 OP parties, which we achieved. I suspect we only achieved that by using the PSIs and people like that to stiffen up some of the OP parties. We tried to send three parties to four different regiments. I was trying to make sure that the regiments that were receiving them knew what they were getting, knew what to expect of the TA, and knew what the TA wanted to get out of this exercise. I spent my time liaising with the second-in-commands of those regiments. What they wanted to be able to do was take OP parties, fly them out to Germany, pick them up from wherever they landed, take them to an exercise area, hand them their kit, and get them to do a two-week exercise. Ideally, then the TA would clean up and hand back all of their kit and the 432 APC, get on a plane and come back to England, having seen nothing of Germany or anything else at all. It's a moot point 
When the regular army went away on exercise in those days, we used to go on a practice camp for five or six weeks. But during the course of that, you had some time off, rest and recreation. We argued that the TA were no different, that they wanted a little bit of balance. They're very happy to work for two weeks, but they'd like to see a little bit of Germany. It's what keeps them coming back. So they want a day off. This today. Getting that message across was quite difficult. Yeah, but I think he's right. You know, uh, it's not all work and no play. I mean, it is work. They're going there on a function. It's a, it's a, na- it's a huge exercise, or any of them, only any of these exercises. But they need it. They're only asking for a, you know, to get pissed one night and and to perhaps have a chance to careen around a bit of Germany, seeing the sights. Now, uh, one of we've got another another person who's going to rise to command the South Nazis soon. Uh, he, one of the newest recruits sent out to uh, to uh, Operation Lionheart. Uh, who is this? Well, it's a young student from Nottingham Trent Polytech- oh, Polytechnics. I remember um, one Jeremy Higgins, who'd only recently joined as an officer cadet, looking to be trained as an OP officer. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting. He's he's, uh, he's he's learning the new wireless system. You might Clansman, remember it. I do remember Clansman, Clansman. Uh, the associated coding method. What was that? Cold. Do you remember that? No. All oh, right. Well, you you're so secret in the intelligence corps, you wouldn't you wouldn't use it. Uh, he's he's learning them. He's lear- learning how to use them. Uh, what else would he have to learn? Well, he'd have to learn uh, voice procedure and ranging, as well as the arcane skills of camouflage. Yeah, and uh, with the other OP teams, in preparation, he'd spent many weekends on the Proteus training grounds as the South Notazars fought to get this 12 trained OP parties. Uh, now, when he goes out, he's assigned to 49th Battery of 27th Field Regiment. That's a regular regiment, of course. And he goes out as a part of an OP team uh, led by Captain Bob White. Uh, and here he found that the 1980s uh, did uh, did not differ in at least one respect from the 1970s. Uh, yeah, the vehicle supplied to the TA still didn't work. Oh, no. And this is what Officer Cadet Jeremy Higgins of 426 Troops said. It was my first exercise of any kind with the TA. I was going to fill up the numbers and do some signalling. So everything was new to me, and I didn't have a clue as to what I was doing or what to expect or anything. Sounds a bit like us at times. Bob White came back saying, that's our truck. It's broken. So we met our 432 APC and it was broken. We had no ferret. We spent the next day and a bit there because they couldn't get the vehicle to work. It was indicative of the situation at the time. By definition, we got the most knackered vehicle in the unit. Now, in the intelligence corps, if you had TA come in, you had to give them a vehicle. Would you give them the best one, one in the middle, or the knackered one? Knackered one. Yeah. Now, Higgins was very much the sprog, and his main role at this stage was in cooking meals on and off the move. Now, in this, he showed the kind of skills that would mark himself out as a future battery commander by losing (laughs) entirely the cooking kit and associated plates off the back of their 432 APC, uh, which were then duly run over under the grim auspices of Sod's Law by a following tank. I have to say, say, Higgins is a a great character. And you've met him. He came to my book launch once. He's a cracking bloke. Uh, His his officers referred to him as a bag of shit tied up ugly. If he puts a uniform on, he looks quite smart in a suit, but somehow in military clothing, he looks like me. 
Now, it's fair to say that at, the, uh, at that moment, his crew were probably not much impressed by Officer Cadet Higgins, but revenge would be sweet. And this is Officer Cadet Jeremy Higgins of 426 Troop. As the most junior and least competent, I was made a casualty when the umpire decided to test the evacuation procedures. Sorry, I was issued with a little plastic envelope and told to wait in this wood to be collected. In due course, the tanks and the APC disappeared off and I was left on my own. And I was left on my own and I was left on my own. In the end, nobody came to collect me. Several hours later, my own vehicle, I think they were just passing by, they saw me on the edge of the wood, still waiting. So I guess I must have been a battlefield death rather than an evacuated casualty. It convinced me I didn't want to become a casualty in future. Can you just imagine, I'll teach the bastard to fucking lose all our bloody cooking gear. Hey, hi. Now, once Jeremy Higgins got back... As an officer cadet, he had to attend a two-week course at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Now, yeah. what happens there, Pete? Well, they put... Uh, it's, it's a shortened course, isn't it? Uh, well, obviously, two-week. Uh, they put through a serious test of their personal fitness. They go through a basic primer of, of uh, infantry skills and then given a, 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 what they call command tests. I don't think you'd ever do them. <laughs> A series of tests of their lead, leadership skills. You know, it's basically you've got two sticks and a boomerang. How do you get across this gorge? That that kind of thing. Taxi. Taxi, now, yeah. Higgins was duly commissioned as a second lieutenant in June 1985. And we'll be hearing a lot more of, uh, of, 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 of from him. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, Tim Stone, Tim Richmond. <laughs> I may have given away a secret there. Tim Richmond remains in command of 307 Battery until he was finally succeeded after an incredibly, incredibly successful period by Major Peter Stone in May 1985. Um and uh, that's where we're going to leave them for a while. Um, uh, when something's got to the very top, what do you think usually happens? I want you to think of Liverpool over the last couple of seasons, then Liverpool this season. What happens? They plummet downwards. Yeah. And I'm afraid we'll find that nothing due, not due, due to Peter Stone, but it's just a natural way things are. If you get to the top, there's only one way. And that's down. And for a while, we're going to have to tell the story of the South Nazis going down. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?